Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher. Uh, back in New York after a brief trip to Florida. I was there on business, by which I mean I was doing comedy. Uh, I also had a chance to play a little poker. Finally, it's basically the first live poker I've actually gotten a chance to play since like the World Series, uh, which for me is a, is a very long time to not really uh, get onto the felt. I didn't play any tournaments, so I'm not going to be talking about any of the hands I played. Just a little... Uh, five five PLO, a little five ten, no limit. Uh, you know, good times in Florida. I was in South Florida, so I got to play at the uh, brand new Hard Rock Hotel and Casino with its brand new, uh, beautiful, extra large poker room. Uh, I really like what they've done down there. They have put, from what I understand, one point five billion dollars into the Seminole Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida. Um. It shows the place is exquisite. It's very spacious. I mean, if anything, it feels too big. There's like four acres of swimming pool. Uh, (laughs) It's just a lot. But yeah, great place to go visit. Great place to play poker. Um, Yeah, I think you guys should check it out if you've never been. The action is always good. They do something called a rock in the cash games. I'm not going to talk about this for long because I know it's a, a tournament podcast. But... The rock is interesting. It basically means there's a straddle on every hand. So if you're playing 510 with a rock, then somebody has to put on a $25 straddle every single pot. And you can straddle from any position, and you have to do so if you won the previous pot. So it's a it's a great way to end up playing against some hands that normally wouldn't be involved, but because they were forced to put in an extra blind. Uh yeah, it's just a it's a good way to kind of induce action so yeah i like playing with the rock uh yeah good times good times down there um a lot of a lot of talk about what's been going on with the uh wsop player of the year race uh i don't want to get too specific but many of you have asked me on twitter at clayton comic about my thoughts on re-entries there have been some ideas floated by people including the legendary Daniel Negreanu that we should restructure the way we handle re-entries because essentially in many tournaments today you can buy in as late as day two and essentially fold your way to a minimum cash so I don't know of anyone who actually does that but if it's in fact true that just buying in as late as possible and then folding is profitable even if it's slightly plus ev i think there's a real problem with that i mean cashing in a tournament should not be that easy so uh yeah many of you asked my thoughts about the whole re-entry idea now the purist in me would like to go back to the old days where a tournament was either a freeze out or a rebuy now a freeze out is a tournament just like 
the WSOP main event is even today. You can only buy in once, and when you're out, you're out. Hence the name Frozen Out. You're done. You cannot play in this tournament again. Uh, so that's how most tournaments used to be. And when I started nearly 20 years ago, the uh, the other type of tournament that was readily available in most casinos was a rebuy tournament. Now, that is very distinctly different from a re-entry tournament. The way things work in a rebuy tournament is suppose you're playing a $550 rebuy tournament. So the $50 goes to the house and the $500 goes to the prize pool. So this is the old days before they started taking an automatic dealer tip out of every buy-in. A staff bonus or whatever they want to call the money that they're taking and not asking us if we want to give the dealers. Um, Back then, this was not a thing. Most tournaments had a 10% rake. And so if you paid $500, they would also charge you $50 entry fee. If during the rebuy period, which would maybe be the first two or sometimes four hours of the tournament, if you lost all your chips or were even lower than the starting stack or even at the starting stack, you could buy another stack equivalent to the size of the starting stack. So back then, a typical starting stack would be 5,000 chips. So you could rebuy right away, give another 500, and get another 5,000 chips for that 500. On an unlimited basis, during the full rebuy period, the first two or, or four hours, whatever it was for that particular casino. And if you did that, you did not have to get up, go back to the cage. You stayed in your same seat and you bought more chips. So the players who were at your table knew if you were the type of person that took the rebuy period seriously or if you like to gamble it up and just try to build a huge stack during that rebuy period. Very important. Rebuys back then did not include rake. So all rebuys that I knew of were always rake-free. So that's a big difference because you might end up buying in for, let's say you bought in four or five times. Like say you bought in four times for 20000 You still only paid $50 in rake. Contrast that to today's typical tournament, which might be a 500 plus 100 considering all the money they take out that doesn't go to the prize pool, uh, which is more like 20%, right? And then they would also rake each and every re-entry. So I'm not a fan of re-entries just because I remember a simpler time when tournament poker was much more profitable and for so many reasons. I mean, obviously the biggest reason was nobody really knew what they were doing and how to play, but... Also, casinos were much less greedy and tournaments were viewed as a loss leader, just a way to get poker players into the door. You know, maybe you have a shot at winning this $50,000 first place prize, but uh, once you bust out, we hope that you'll stay and pay rake in our cash games. So that's how things used to be, guys. I know this will be a surprise for most of you, especially younger players that don't remember those days. The re-entry concept is relatively new as far as the evolution of poker, and it's not a concept that I like. 
especially because casinos have gotten greedy, they're they're extending this re-entry period on and on and on to where in most tournaments now you can buy in very late in the day, if not on day two, which is just kind of ridiculous, especially for a $10,000 buy-in like the WSOPE, the European World Series of Poker. Uh, it's kind of unfair the way it's done now. But they don't really care because as long as we keep paying more and more rake, they're, they're going to be happy. It's very hard for players nowadays to find a true freeze-out. And I think that most recreational players would prefer them. What I don't like is the way they treat each re-entry as though it were an entirely new person. So by the time the board says there are 300 entries in this tournament, there might actually only be 160 people in the room. (laughs) So that's just how many buy-ins there were. No one's really keeping track of how many unique actual players are there. And I think that's the number that should be used to determine where the prizes begin. So I like tournaments that pay 10% of the field. I'd actually prefer tournaments that paid one person. (laughs) I think it would be great if all tournaments were winner take all, but I understand most of you wouldn't play. Uh, I think that if I feel like I have a skill edge over the field at large, then I should be willing to gamble uh, and try to win all the money that's in the prize pool. I know that sounds crazy, especially when there might be two, three, ten thousand 10,000 players in a tournament, but that is how I feel. And if all tournaments were winner take all, I would play them all. Uh, and it feels good to take one down and win a trophy. So yeah, if you have 75 unique players in the tournament, but there are 324 quote-unquote entries because that's how many times these players bought in including their re-entries I think we should still pay let's make a more reasonable 10% of the field so in this case I would only pay 8 places in a 75 player field so I know most of you don't agree with that most players seem to be in favor of paying more of the players and having uh a flatter payout structure. So I know that I might sound radical to many of you listening, saying this guy would actually want only one person to make money on tournaments and everybody else just lose their entire buy-in. And yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, that's how the single table sit-and-goes work during the World Series of Poker. And I love playing in those because I can I can take it all. Now, you only have to beat nine players as opposed to 300 or 500 or 10,000 or whatever. But still, the concept remains the same. And what you will see very often in those events is when it gets down to two or sometimes even three players at one of these sit-and-goes, a deal will be struck. You guys want to do a chip equity chop. Do you guys want to you know, save some for the winner and play for the rest? Whatever, you know. Uh, there's a lot of creativity that can go on. And I feel like having a winner-take-all structure would still allow for players who... Once they got close to winning that prize, if they didn't feel like gambling, like they'll never forgive themselves if they finish second (laughs) out of 875 in a winner-take-all tournament. Uh, They can always make a deal. And I feel like that would make poker more interesting. I think especially for viewers, you know, you got to remember, guys, I come from an entertainment background. And I think the viewers at home would love to see us play for all the marbles. 
Uh, I know that's probably never going to happen, but it's just philosophically where I'm at. But coming back down to earth and thinking about the real world possibilities, I believe that tournaments should pay based on how many unique entries there are, not based on how many re-entries there are. And I think it's criminal the way the casinos have basically distorted the idea of rebuys and add-ons, which never used to be raked. And now even tournaments that do have a quote-unquote rebuy, you might sit in the same seat, so that would be the same, but they're actually raking the rebuys and raking the add-ons. So it's just greed on the part of the casinos. And because they've seen other casinos making a lot of money by increasing the rake and making things less uh, favorable for the players who don't really seem to be paying that much attention to how much of the buy-in is going to the prize pool and how much is going to other places such as the staff and a dealer bonus and whatever else, administrative fees. I've seen that on some tickets that I've purchased. Uh, Until players start caring about it, they're just going to increase the rake and make things worse for us. A big example is that... uh, (laughs) That thing that the Venetian tried to do, which was we have a set prize pool for this tournament. So even if I think it was one hundred fifty thousand, so even if we sell four hundred thousand dollars worth of tickets to this tournament, the prize pool is still going to be one hundred fifty thousand. Uh, so it was an epic fail. They end up having a big overlay, and I'm glad they did. I hope they never try anything stupid like that again. So those are my thoughts on that, and. Uh, I'd love to hear what you guys think. Uh, I know that most of you will probably say you like a flatter payout structure and, uh, you know, more of a equitable distribution of wealth a la uh, Bernie Sanders or something. And, and you know, I'm not going to get political here one way or the other, but I will say that in poker, I think it's more exciting for the viewers and for some of the players, myself included, if the first place prize is really large. For example, in the early days of the World Poker Tour, believe it or not, 50% of all the prize pools went to first place. So if you played in a big tournament at the Commerce Casino, like the LAPC main event, everybody buys in for $10,000 and there might be, I don't know, $7 million in the prize pool. Well, 3.5 would go to first place. Think about that because nowadays first place often gets like 16%. I've seen as low as 12%. I think for the viewers at home, as well as for the true gamblers that might be on the felt, maybe having some tournaments at least where it's a lot more top heavy would be great. And I think that that might even attract more recreational players, which seems to be on everybody's mind. Whenever this subject comes up, well, what is which is more fair to recreational players? My opinion, recreational players want to play one tournament and have one big score. And that would be more enticing to them than saying, you know, look, there's... Like, I remember the first Colossus. We were all up in arms because they had 22,000 entries at like $560 each for this enormous prize pool. I think it was a $10 million prize pool. And first place got like 600000 And all of us thought it should be at least a million. All of us. Anyway, enough about that. 
Uh, this episode might end up being a little shorter than some recently, uh, just because I want to go over two quick pre-flop spots from the WSOP main event day two. Uh, this is the 2019 10K buy-in Las Vegas Rio main event, which, by the way, guys, have you seen that the WSOP will be at the Rio again next summer? So I know if you were out there with us this year, all you heard was how this was going to be the last year at the Rio. They were going to demolish the Rio. It was There were plans to sell the Rio, or there were rumors that it had already been sold, and that Everyone thought that that meant, well, next year it's going to be in another convention center. Maybe at Planet Hollywood. I heard all kinds of speculation. They're going to do it at Caesars. Nope. It's going to be at the Rio <laughs> again. So for those who were shedding a tear about, you know, I'm really going to miss this place, don't miss it too much. Not yet, because we'll be there again in 2020. So here's a hand from kind of early, I think the second level of day two. Day 2C. So the way it works is they have three starting days and then two day twos. One for the first two starting days and then one for just the third starting day. So this is 2C. All the players who survived day 1C come back to play 2C. And the blinds are 500, 1,000 with a 1,000 big blind ante. And this is going to be a blind versus blind hand. Uh, let's see. Our small blind is a player I actually know. His name is Ryan Poshedley. So it folds to Ryan Poshedley in the small blind with 55,000. So you would look at that and say he's got 55 blinds. This is the math we can all do, right? When the big blind is 1K, it's real easy to say 55K is uh, obviously uh, 55 big blinds. So he's got 55 bigs. He's doing great, right? Well, let's wait a minute here, because if you look at his M, he's doing great, but not as great as you might think. Uh, with 2,500 in the pot, he's got 55,000 for an M of 22. So he's not in bad shape, but you don't want to see your M go down below uh, like 15, because that's when you start to have some of your tools taken away. You can't really play suited connectors or other speculative hands. You can't be limping into pots or calling small raises, hoping to see a good flop once your stack gets below a certain level. Uh, as we discussed last week, your M kind of dictates mathematically what makes sense and what doesn't for you as far as speculation and how aggressively you should play your hands. So he's fine, but if he loses a pot or two, he's not going to be fine. The big blind, I know I didn't tell you what Ryan has yet, building some suspense here. The big blind is a player named Clive Forte, who I was unable to find any information about him other than what I saw in the hands that he played on Poker Go. Uh, Clive is a typical reg. Um, you know, he seems to play a tight, aggressive style. So that's the best I can do as far as an explanation. And he doesn't appear to have any major caches, according to Hendon Mob and other sources. So he's kind of a tight, aggressive amateur, or at least in the sense that he doesn't play a lot of tournaments. Obviously, there aren't that many websites that keep track of live cash game pros. 
So Ryan holding ace of spades, ten of spades. So ace, ten suited, folded to Ryan Pashedli in the small blind. Uh, obviously, you're going to raise here a lot. You could use this as part of your limp re-raising strategy if you think that Clive in the big blind is going to be raising every time you limp in. So there are some players that if you ever try to limp in, uh, open limp in the in the small blind, they'll pretty much always raise you from out of the big blind. And so against those players, you need to counter uh, counter that strategy by sometimes limping with strong hands with the intention of re-raising. Uh, so you could put ace-10 suited into that category if you wanted to. But I like Ryan's decision here to just go ahead and open. And he makes it 3,500, so 3.5 times the big blind, which I think is also uh, a good sizing. Um, you don't want to give the player who has position and, and also has us covered, by the way, an easy decision to just call with any two cards because he's in position and getting very good pot odds. You don't want to make it a trivial decision for him by raising to three or three and a half to four times the, the big blind. You actually give that player something to think about. And so he can't just always call and then play his position post flop profitably because it costs too much pre flop for him to do that. So I like this sizing. And I think it also has the effect of making Clive's uh, three bets more pure. By which I mean, it, say say Ryan had chosen to open to just the minimum, 2,000. Well, now Clive should be able to make it 6,000 with a lot of hands and get a lot of folds. Or at worst, get a lot of calls where he can now play an inflated pot in position. But I don't think Clive would do that so readily when it's going to cost him a lot more to make a credible three bet in this situation. So Clive decides to re-raise, and I have intentionally not told you what he's holding. He makes it 11200 to go. Now, putting yourself in Ryan's shoes, you open raised from the small blind with the ace 10 suited and you've now gotten you know you've now been three bet by the player in the big blind all right let's look at this sizing too by the way from 35 all the way up to 11200 now this is a little bit more than three times the open and one thing i noticed this summer when i was playing tournaments virtually every day is that players' three-bet sizing is generally too small. Uh, I, I would see a lot of like 9,000 in these situations, which just makes it too easy for Ryan to just call for 5,500 more and see a flop with whatever he has, even if it's as bad as like Jack-10 suited or something. It wouldn't be terrible to call. But now getting this price, I think the bigger bets make your opponent's decisions more pure. Not saying that there'll never be a bluff here. But if Ryan wants to bluff now, he's pretty much got to go all in. So should we go all in? Obviously, it would not be a bluff. We're not turning ace, ten of spades into a bluff. Because we, we have the dynamic of the small blind versus the big blind, 
we need to ask ourselves, do we want to get it all in here? Obviously, any further raising on the part of Poshedli would commit him so clearly to the pot, even if he just made it like 20,000. He's only got 55,000 total. You don't put in 40% of your stack and then fold ace, 10 of spades. You just don't. So Clive has put us into a shove or fold situation. So which one would you choose to do? Obviously, it's player dependent. I haven't given you that much information about Clive. This is the first pot in which these two players were heads up in the blinds for what it's worth. And there hasn't been a lot of pre-flop raise war between them. So let's talk about Clive's range. A typical, regular, tight, aggressive player. Three betting from the big blind. Does he do it with many hands that are worse than ace, ten of spades? I think he does it with some at least. Maybe like king, queen, ace, five seems to be a lot of people's favorite, especially ace, five suited. Seems to be a lot of people's favorite hand to throw in to your range because you don't want to always have aces or kings when you three bet here, obviously. You got to have some less beautiful hands as well. Uh, he might do this with certain pairs. I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of us would just call with a lot of our pairs. Like in Clive's shoes, holding pocket sevens, I would probably just call and see a flop in position and hope to hit the board. Or at least get checked to a couple times so I could take it down. So when Clive three bets, how does Pichedley feel about ace, ten of spades? Well, Pichedley makes the decision to go all in. And I got to admit, I'm impressed. Uh, With an M of 22, with 55 big blinds, just deciding, look, you know what? It's blind versus blind. If you have ace 10 beat right now and you're willing to call and get it all in with me, it's just not my main event. How many of us buy in for 10,000 and do something so tightrope walky? <laughs> I know that's not a word. Don't don't at me. I'm impressed because I feel like Ryan Pachetli, by the way, I know him. He's an established a uh, pro player. He plays a lot of like 1Ks at Parks, which is uh, a smaller casino in uh, the Philadelphia area. So he's an East Coast guy. You'll see him sometimes at Borgata and places like that. But mostly he kind of sticks around the Philadelphia area. Um, yeah, he's a decent player. And I feel like knowing what I know about him, This wasn't just a frustration like, you know what, I don't know what else to do, so I'm just going to shove and hope for the best. I feel like it was more he had a sense about the strength of his opponent's hand. And he felt like, obviously calling is not profitable because it's just putting in too much of my stack out of position. Like, you guys understand that I'm I'm in a, a shove or fold scenario here. You really can't afford to call like 8,000 more when you only have 55k to start. So, it's a good play by Ryan. 
assuming that it was partly reed-based, or maybe there were hands that we didn't see that led him to uh, getting a sense of how Clive Forte plays. But also, it might even be more simple than that. You know what? It's blind versus blind. I really can't fold a hand as strong as Ace-10 for any amount of chips against the big blind unless the big blind is just the tightest, nittiest, 99-year-old lady in the world. Ace-10 suited is a very strong hand, heads up. So Pachetli does make the, the shove, and Forte folds the Ace of Diamonds, Nine of Hearts. Now, I'm not sure that I would put this hand into my three-betting range pre-flop. You can't really get called by worse, and there are some hands that might shove that I'd rather just take a flop in position against. Which, of course, when they shove, I can't call, so I'll never get to see that flop, no matter what. I'm talking about hands like pocket eights, maybe king-queen. Right? I mean, if Pushedley's shoving ace-10, isn't he also shoving king-queen? Or is ace-10 the literal bottom of his range here? So I think Forte can make his life easier just by calling, play your position, let the guy bluff you when you flop a pair, and you usually win the pot. So in this case, I would advocate for more passive play with a hand like ace-9, which is a good but not great hand for the situation. You don't want to go out on a limb and re-raise and then have to fold a hand that probably has equity. I mean, as we know, it had very little equity because uh, Pushedley had him pipped as the cards actually happened to lie that day. So Forte folds the ace-nine offsuit and Pushedley takes down a nice pot with no flop. Okay, and the other hand that I wanted to get into today comes from the same... Blind level, 501K with the 1K big blind ante. We're on a different table this time. Uh, this table features the likes of Nick Schulman. Uh, who else was on this table? Another famous pro. Um, and two players that I've heard of, but I'm not sure that everyone out there has heard of. Uh, so let's get into it. It's a full nine-handed table. Again, day 2C of the WSOP main event in Vegas. Folds to Matthias Hagenau in the cutoff. Uh, I don't want to tell you what hand he has yet, but I will say he's got 56,000 in chips. Kind of very similar stack to what we saw Pachetli playing in the previous hand. So he's in fine shape, even though he's actually down from the starting stack because the main event, the structure is so slow. You still have an M of 22. Even when you're down a little bit from your starting stack in the middle of day two. So that cannot be emphasized enough. You should not be in a huge rush to make things happen in the main event. It's a slow structure. On the button, there's a player that we're going to be for this hand. You are Martin Vega uh, from Argentina. A pretty well-known professional South American poker player with uh, you know, a lot of pretty decent caches under your belt. Like 
Martin's around. Younger guy in his twenties, um, but he's around. He's on the he's on the scene, and he makes it. Oh, let's see. He's got a four diamonds, and a tray of diamonds, and thirty thousand in chips. So before we talk about how Martin plays this hand, let's talk about this thirty k stack. Now, shorthand, we have thirty big blinds, but let's get into it. There's twenty five hundred in the pot. All right, so. If I had 25,000, my M would be 10. So 5,000, more than 25,000, my M should be 12. Now, he's in uh, kind of the middle zone. Like, it's not like he needs to necessarily make something happen. But when you get to 10, 11, 12 in your, uh, in your stack size for your M, you want to think about trying to get that stack up to a more comfortable level, like a 15, 16, because you're starting to get to where it becomes questionable. Like if you want to open pocket fives for middle position, it's just not sure. You, you can't be sure you want to do that. And so usually you want to fold that hand with an M of 10 or 11 or 12 because you just can't afford to be speculating and you can't call a three bet because you don't want to get committed with pocket fives. So you want to be able to play those hands. So sometimes when you see a spot, you should make an aggressive act that you think might help you get back to that healthy range. In this case, having something like 50,000, I think would be a healthy stack for this blind level. 50 big blinds, M of 20. So one good way to do that is by taking some of your uh, hands that you would normally fold and just three bet them in position with the intention of hopefully winning the pot right now, but also making good C betting decisions because that's how you build a stack in tournaments. It's when you build a pot in position and then take it down with or without a hand on the flop. That's just how tournaments go. That's a big part of playing tournaments. If you're not doing this, if you're never three betting without the nuts or close to it, you're just not getting after it enough. And even in a slow structure tournament like the main event, you have to try to do something to keep up with the increasing blinds and antes, even if they're not increasing all that quickly. So Vega makes it 6,500. So... Hagenau had opened to 2,200. I don't know if I said 25 before, but looking at my notes here, he had actually opened to 2,200 from the cutoff. So in this spot, Vega's two cards don't really matter that much. This play is designed to win the 2,200 that Matias just put in plus the 2,500 that was already in there for a total of 4,700, including the blinds and antes. Adding 4,700 to a 30K stack is better than 15% improvement on that stack. You guys can check my math if you want to. That's not insignificant. Anytime you can pick a spot where you might be able to just take it down right now and increase your stack by 15 or more percent and also not truly risk your own stack in the process, you should probably consider doing it. Obviously, it depends a lot on 
what kind of opponents you have in the blinds, um, you know, what the frequencies are of the player who originally opened. But just speaking generally, not really talking about these two in particular, it's important to have plays like this in your arsenal. Does it make sense, though, to do it with suited for Trey? I mean, look, most of us fold this hand without a thought, right? But you do want to have board coverage, meaning that your opponents can't assume you missed a flop that's all low cards. Now, if I'm the pre-flop three better, every once in a while, I want to have a four in my hand when it comes jack four, four. And most of you will never have a four in your hand if you were the pre-flop three better. So think about that. A keen and calculating opponent will be able to know for a fact that you don't have a four. For that reason alone, it's worth it to occasionally mix in a hand like this. I'm not. I'm still not going to advocate this play, though. I think it's close. It's not bad. I'd rather him have a blocker. Some kind of blocker. I don't mind if he wants to try this play with like a king seven suited. Or, of course, all of us are doing it with like an ace five suited. You know, nowadays, everybody loves ace five, as I mentioned. And there's a reason for that. If you get it all in pre-flop with ace five suited against any hand other than pocket aces, you're never worse than 30% to win the pot. So that's why in the last few years, a lot of players have fallen in love, maybe some a little too much, with the ace-five suited. The only hand you truly fear when you have that hand is one that you block, pocket aces. So because he doesn't have those blockers or any cards that he would want his opponent to have, uh, that's a, enough reason for me to say, you know what, in this particular tournament... The main event, maybe in a turbo, this play is better. But I think Martin should stay uh, patient and wait for a better spot. Like, yeah, he does want to have a pretty wide three-betting range versus Matias because Matias is uh, a Dutch pro who's pretty loose-aggressive and probably would open a lot of cutoffs, which is probably why Vega assumed it doesn't really much matter what his two cards are. And also 4-3 suited isn't hopeless. But with all of that in mind, I would still probably throw this one away. But Martin does 3-bet to 6,500. So you can see now he's already put in 20% of his stack. And folds back to Hagenau, who shoves. And then, of course, Vega, he's not going to call all in (laughs) with 4 high. So that hand is over. Now, I know a lot of the hands we discuss on the podcast are a little bit more, you know, how to play complicated turns, you know, uh, what you should do, should you float the flop and bet the turn, and, you know, how to play rivers. I think pre-flop is where a lot of the damage actually gets done in tournaments, good and bad. And so looking at spots like these and really critically analyzing your own game and how you play in spots like this pre-flop and whether you would consider either plays like the one Martin makes in this hand or that Clive made in the first hand, would you ever even consider doing things like this? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Just helps you become a better, more complete 
player. And we used to talk about no limit tournament players, some of them being better pre-flop and some of them better post-flop. Obviously, in today's game, to win at any stakes above $100, you actually need to be good at both. So that'll do it for this episode, guys. I really appreciate your listening. I appreciate all the emails. Poker at ClaytonFletcher.com. Of course, those of you who tweet, that's the easiest way to reach us. Uh, you can tweet me at ClaytonComic. If you're not yet a subscriber to Tournament Poker Edge, you really need to become one as soon as possible. Uh, for as little as $25 a month with a one-year subscription, you can have access to some of the greatest minds in poker talking in graphic detail about hands and also theories and watching these videos and learning from these amazing players who are also amazing teachers, coaches. I'm talking about Colin Moshman, Andrew Brokus, Alex Fitzgerald, and on down the line. Uh, this is a great way to really improve your game and give yourself a chance of making the final table in a big tournament one day and knowing what to do once you get there. So for more on that, visit tournamentpokeredge.com. So for everyone here at TPE, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.